Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about the things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. This week we're bringing you a classic episode from The Vault as we do some late summer traveling. That's right. This episode is episode 28, where we discuss the cyberpunk genre with author Heidi Ruby Miller, as well as the movie Fast Color. Enjoy, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode. So Carrie and I are really excited. We're here today with Heidi Ruby Miller, who is a science fiction author, and I will let Heidi tell us a little bit about herself and her work. Thank you, Kathleen and Carrie, for having me on this awesome podcast. I listen to you guys quite often. We're girls. We're all girls here. (laughs) I actually started out as a travel writer and ended up going into fiction, mostly thanks to being a student at Seton Hill University, which I know both of you were. And can I tell everyone that you were awesome mentees of mine while I was yeah, teaching the program? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, and just like you, I had that great experience of being a student, and I wrote science fiction for my thesis novel because I've always loved science fiction, and uh, that's mostly what I do write. Even my thrillers are speculative in nature and have a bit of a science fiction bent, and then the new middle grade series that my husband and I are writing together we have been able to uh, incorporate quite a bit of science fiction in there. I mean, it's about pocket universes, so. <laughs> and you just finished the first, the manuscript of this the first morning. book This right? morning, yes, yeah. absolutely. So now Jason gets uh, another crack at it, and I have a giant list of notes for him to go through to check science facts and check music facts. It has a lot of music in it as well. Nice. Um, yeah, and look just for inconsistencies that maybe I missed somewhere along the line. And then uh, whenever he's done with his go-through, then we will both read it. We'll read it out loud and like do it one more time and then should be ready to go by that. And we're also doing an adult thriller series that has a science fiction element to it. So he has been working on that. So we're just going to trade right now. So that'll be fun. Cool. Okay, cool. That's awesome. So cyberpunk is a subgenre of sci-fi. Yes. Is that right? It is, yes. So how did you kind of go from regular old sci-fi or what you were doing for your thesis to cyberpunk and tell us about it, what it is and why you like it. So sure. Much. Yes. Well, interestingly enough, my thesis novel is probably more categorized as space opera, but I put a lot of cyberpunk in there. And I was always interested in cyberpunk because it just had that flair. And by flair, I mean, it has the awesome neon colors everywhere. And you have like this idea of the cool hairstyles and the fashion and so forth. So that like drew me in right away. We're talking like Blade Runner, like back in the day. And then of course, you just had the new Blade Runner recently, which I thought was also very, very awesome. And of course, Philip K. Dick, who doesn't necessarily always, he's not always looked at as like the grandfather of cyberpunk, though, he should be, and in some circles, you know, he does have that title. Well, obviously, talking about Blade Runner, original, you know, adapted from the Android Stream of Electric Sleep and Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going with that. Like, right. I did that in class when I did. I did a um, class where we talked about some of the cyberpunk stuff at Seton Hill too, and they did that same thing. <laughs> so it's funny where your mind just automatically goes. But cyberpunk is kind of almost what it sounds like with the word cyber and the word punk. And, you know, punk only came into our vernacular in 1971. Greg Shaw used the term punk in an uh, April issue of Rolling Stone that year. 
And yep. And that's when it kind of like just, it was the word that talked about the music scene at the time. And it was the idea of this rebellious, this rebellious type of person and of music. And again, the, the style, um, they had a very definite style and so forth. And uh, then the term cyberpunk actually started to be used in science fiction because of a short story by the name of Cyberpunk by Bruce Bethke. And um, you can they, you can read that short story for free today. It is um, on a British website, Infinity Plus. And it is actually, it's very cool. And it was about a group of teens that had their own jargon and that were hackers. And kind of, it was this neat little idea about using language that hackers use without giving any explanation to it. And cyberpunk has completely kept that tone, which might be one of the reasons why it's probably not one of the um, more popular science fiction subgenres. Uh, it is with me. It's like absolutely one of my favorite. I seek it out. And people who love cyberpunk will seek out cyberpunk. Like in, look at Instagram. You can just um, put in a hashtag for cyberpunk and you get tons and tons of awesome artists that are doing all of these incredible things. Um, some of the ones that I like is uh, at Steve Rowe, R-O-E, and 301-2015. And then my favorite, Neuromute, because People who are William Gibson fans will completely understand that name of Nora Mute. Like, it's kind of an insider thing. And you can already see jargon like that is probably <laughs> why. Right? Even sometimes regular science fiction people just are kind of put off by it. But I think it, it's absolutely fascinating. And then after Bruce Bethke kind of came up with what he did not realize was going to be the term that was going to coin an entire subgenre, we, of course had the big one, which was Neuromancer by William Gibson. Actually, the Japanese had been doing quite a bit with cyberpunk even before them, but it wasn't called that. So it never kind of got established. William Gibson was really the one that kind of almost said, hey, I'm writing cyberpunk. And so then that's how he ended up becoming, you know, really like the, the father of everything. And uh, Neuromancer, of course, is a trilogy. You have Neuromancer, you have Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive. And they are so jargony. I was surprised after having read Richard K. Morgan's Altered Carbon, which we'll hopefully go talk about a little bit here, going back and reading Mona Lisa Overdrive, I was like, wow. So Gibson like completely does not care if you do not understand the jargon <laughs> at all. Where Richard K. Morgan, it was a lot more of what you would expect a novel to sound like. But Whenever you get into Gibson, it is just completely, and it's, I think that's awesome though. I think that's one of the things that attracts me to it is because, you know what? It reminded me of whenever I was a child and there would be words in there that I didn't know, but I was able to either use the context clues or I was able to look them up, but I was always thrilled that there was something new. And for me, that's what cyberpunk is. Like it is always something new. And cyberpunk is usually not hopeful. But for some reason, I get a ton of hope from it. Like, I, I just, it is just so awesome. I think it's because of the, the advancements and, like, the cool tech. I love tech. So that, to me, is just, like, so much part of it. And it's neat to see the things that Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer in 1984, like, the things that he got completely right, and then the things that you were like, oh, 
wow, they were thinking we were still going to have payphones, you know, things like that. <laughs> yeah. So it, like, I think it's always, with all science fiction, it's always great to kind of see. In a way, because cyberpunk is usually a near future, like Westworld is a great example of that. Westworld, you get to see what might happen. But for something like Neuromancer, it's almost that idea of the future that never was because it's all of these things that maybe could have happened. And we can still kind of process them because most of it is still our world. It's just this highly exoticized technological world. Very cool. I actually have a, a kind of a question. How how far in the future, you're saying the near future, but how near does it have to be? Because there was a book that I read not too many months ago called Interface by Neil Stevenson. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Neil Stevenson, pretty awesome. Snow Crash. Yeah, I love Snow it's Crash. But mm -hmm. Interface was written in the early 90s, but set in more of the late 90s. And it was a like a political thriller, but it had this cyber element to it. There was a lot of technology, a lot of like neurological technology that people were using. And people don't really call that book cyberpunk. But I was wondering if you would call a book like that cyberpunk. Uh, you know, I probably would. As with anything, there are really no hard rules as to things if they fit into a genre or a subgenre. And if it doesn't suit someone, they can always make a sub subgenre of it <laughs> in order to say, okay, well, this is it. This is a flashback type of cyberpunk or this is you know historical cyberpunk that type oh, of thing but okay. yeah i i have not read interface interface yeah but i would probably venture from just some of the things that you've said to say that it could probably end up in a category like if someone were looking for it on amazon for instance like mm -hmm. you can have a wide range of tags then they'd probably be able to find it somewhere there even my series because it's very, very far future. The Ambassador series is, I still use so much of the type of neurological tech. And I go into a lot of drugs and substances and mind altering type of things are always huge for cyberpunk as well. And I, I use a lot of that, especially with the fraggers who are like the techno militant group that is there because they're in their fashion, I probably do a lot with their fashion that is very cyberpunk in that <laughs> regard. And their music, like I always introduce, as a matter of fact, the main fragger character every time that we start a chapter with him, it is always with either loud music or loud noise or something of that sort. And I did that consciously, even though the reader may not realize that, because I have a certain sensory cue that I start every single one of my characters with whenever I go through the chapters and for his it's that because it kind of mirrors his manic personality everything about him is manic and it's not just because of the drugs it's because of who he is and how he feels about things and this ideology that he has and so forth so even though mine is far future I still one of the labels I would put it under is uh, definitely cyberpunk so even though that whole idea of the near future and you figure in 84, you know, the, the near future was a lot nearer to what we have now than 2020. So it can always kind of be pushed back. And that's why some of the older ones probably are more of the almost the futures that never happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, how it was adapted for the screen, the Blade Runner, based on yeah. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the, the future that it imagined in 1982 is now past. I think it was right. a couple of years ago. 
And I just recently saw the second Blade Runner. And it was funny how that was still in what would be our future, but they kept some of the stuff that wouldn't mm-hmm. have really come to pass. And I, I thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah, because it stayed true to the world. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I thought they did a really good job with that. Yeah. That yeah, I was pretty good. happy about it. Mm-hmm. Cool. So what are some other examples that you particularly like? If somebody does not know anything about this genre and is just coming to this cold, what are some really solid book examples? And maybe we can segue into television then. Yeah, sure. Well, we definitely mentioned Neil Stevenson already. Um, absolutely. Also, Joel Shepard, he has a great series and it deals actually with a female and she reminds you a little bit of Dolores uh, from Westworld, at least like as far as her personality goes. And even maybe a little bit um, with her motivations and so forth. And the first one in that, it's the Sandra Kresnov series. And Kill Switch is the very first one, like if you wanted to get into that. Then there's also um, the Unincorporated series that Brothers Danny and... I think it's Eaton, E-Y-T-A-N. I've actually never heard it pronounced. Colin, K-O-L-L-I-N. The first one is The Unincorporated Man. Also very cyberpunkish. And then um, our very own Seton Hill, Casey's Wright with Cog. Yes, yes, through Dogstar Books. Cog is like the example. Like Cerise just hit everything that you needed to have with cyberpunk in Cog and is absolutely awesome. Like I always joke that uh, Streis and I that Streis is like my sci-fi sister because we share a birthday as well oh. and we went to <laughs> grad school at the same time both published by Dog Star Books both love cyberpunk and science fiction so yeah Streis is Pog and she is working on a follow-up to the second oh, book good. yeah for it. great yeah and has this really cool cover too that I absolutely love yeah the cover of that book is is pretty spectacular oh, and yeah very distinctive it is, that's for sure. Yeah, it's good stuff. So one of the current examples in television that you've mentioned that you really like is Alter Carbon. I haven't seen it. I don't know if KW's seen it, but... I saw uh, one episode of it. Okay. I so not. The first episode of the first season? Yes, yes. Oh, you know what? That one is actually kind of true to the book, which okay. is interesting. There are... Like some big things that are different about the series and that are different about the book. And being that neither of you have seen the series, I'm not sure how much I want to spoil any of this for you. You can, you can spoil it. <laughs> I can't okay tell you. Spoilers. Are you? Okay. Let me tell you about how KW spoiled The Masked Singer for me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, did you, Kathleen? Uh, I didn't I'm, talk to her for like a week. I'm never. That's not true. And I'm never going to live this down. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm okay with spoilers if KW is okay with spoilers. That's yes. We'll we'll warn our listeners how far we sort of okay. spoil into the yes. series. So yeah, like this shouldn't be such a big spoiler. The woman who is uh, Raylene in the book is um, actually like an old boss of the main character Takeshi Kovach, but in the show it's his sister. Oh, and that was a really good change. Because any time that you have a sibling relationship like that, I think that just adds this gravitas, it adds this extra layer to it. And it totally did. I had actually seen the series, the first series before I had read the books. And so I was really surprised to, because whenever I was first, I was like, we were going along just kind of like how the first episode did and so on and so forth. They sped it up 
from the book quite a bit in order to get, you know, those nice um, action points as you went along. But yeah, I was like surprised by a few things here and there. I will warn you if you're not into violence, which actually not, I don't know why I gravitate sometimes towards some of these things. It is super violent. Yes. Okay. The book is violent. There are some like virtual torture scenes that I have watched the first series probably like four times. And after the first time sitting through the torture scene, uh, which lasts a long time, I, uh, I had to keep like fast forwarding through those parts in order to get past it. But in the book, it's, it's even worse. And they are doing it for the simple reason. And again, this could be a spoiler, but we have to see that Takeshi has been trained to understand that whenever he is in a virtual simulation, that he can be in control, even though they are putting all of these horrible images and he's feeling these things that they're doing to him. And the best part of that is that he knows the only way that he can gain control. And this is something that he was what was called an envoy, which again, the envoy in the book, what it's called, and the envoy on the series are two very different things. One was a military, one was a rebel. So, you, you know, you have different sides of the coin there. But um, yes, Carrie? I, since I've never seen it. You don't want to know. No, no, no. Can oh. you give me a quick synopsis of the premise so I kind of understand what's, what's going on? I could. I feel like I hate to give spoilers for things. <laughs> no, I really do. I think just a basic setup, even even just sort of summarizing some, okay. some things that happen in the first episode or so, yeah, would be um, helpful. Takeshi Kovach comes back in what is called a new sleeve, which essentially is a new body. Okay. After being put under, and I, I'll go by the series so that I don't keep saying, oh, but in the book it's this, because okay. that's, that will be annoying. <laughs> oh, wow. So in the series, the TV series on Netflix, he comes back in a different body after having been under for, I think it's 250 years, because he was imprisoned. That was his prison sentence. Gotcha. Yes. And when they talk about spinning people back up, what essentially they're talking about is putting what's called a cortical stack, which is you, everything about you that they have uploaded into this little disc that goes just like at the, the base of your brain there. And that means that they can insert you into any body that they want at any time. And you can, of course be inserted in. It's not necessarily a punishment, although sometimes they use it that way as a punishment. Well, he has been put there because a very rich man who's been alive for 350 years, because he keeps downloading into different bodies that all look like him. So you can get like your own clone, essentially, oh. and then yes, put yourself in there, uh, believes that someone tried to kill him. And even though, of course, he was put into a new body, he the police tried to say that it was suicide and he wants this guy to find out who did it in case okay. they try to wipe out his stack, which means real death. Real death you can't come back from. Okay, cool. So that's where we are with that. And it gotcha. turns out that Takeshi was a member of a resistance outfit, the Envoys, led by Kelquist Falconer. And she was the one who actually invented stacks and then realized that people like Lawrence Bancroft were going to use them to live forever and essentially talk about class separation 
you would have the ultra ultra rich that could live forever and everyone else was basically just a, a, a very ephemeral life form that were there to do their bidding um, in some way or another. Okay, so that brings up something interesting because from that and from your books that I've read and from other some a couple other maybe cyberpunk-esque things, it really does seem like it's very focused on class mm. and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, most cyberpunk that I've read also is that way. Very class differentiated. And I don't know if that is an effect of believing where technology will take us or where humanity will take us, that that's just going to be the inevitable route that we're going to end up uh, going in, that you're going to have the ultra-wealthy and then you're just going to have the rest of us. But yeah, that that happens quite a bit in cyberpunk. That would be actually probably one of the tropes, in fact. Okay. I'd never thought of that before, but that is awesome. I'm going to put that into my... Uh, I'm, I'm doing a... Uh, cyberpunk thing for Seton Hill in June. So I'm going to put that in the presentation now. Yep. I would say, I would say something that I've observed too, because I have, you know, read and and seen some fair amount of cyberpunk, not as much as you have Heidi, but, but in addition to it being class differentiation, I feel like there is like an explicit sense of exploitation. Like Mm. not just that everybody's okay with how it is. Like there's definitive unrest and, even going back to Blade Runner again, but the replicants, I think, felt exploited and were like, you know, purposely saying that and trying to escape that exploitation. So talking about how not only humanity itself can be exploited through class differentiation and and inequality, but that the technology itself is going to rebel. And it's like, I know Battlestar Galactica isn't quite cyberpunk, but there is this idea of if you give machines enough sentiency, they're going to feel used and it's maybe oh, not yeah, great. Well, yeah, I actually would say that Battlestar Galactica does have a lot of cyberpunk elements because of that. And it's the same way with Westworld. I mean, that's, you have Dolores with the awakening essentially, and you have that idea of what is being, and of course, I don't want to give spoilers for this, but in the current season of Westworld, we see that not only does Dolores feel this way, but we also have, humans who are feeling this way and being able to form this kind of alliance. I won't go any further than that. <laughs> I don't I don't like to ruin things for people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I haven't watched it yet, so Oh oh you haven't? Oh yeah. We've been watching Esmond coming on, so Okay. I'm really behind on like a lot of television. <laughs> That's okay. I always feel that way too. We are just now watching The Witcher, in fact. Everybody kept talking about that. And so we're on the sep- second episode. We have a lot of time right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll probably give that a start soon, too. Yeah, I haven't watched that yet either. <laughs> well, you know, part of what Kathleen was talking about with the exploitation, I think it does come from the fact that, well, first of all, body-wise, what are we? In most cyberpunk, the body does not matter. It is definitely everything that is either in the mind or that's in the virtual world in some manner. Even in the Neuromancer trilogy, you get to a point where it isn't really even about, uh, I mean, people do the alterations on their bodies, and some of them even are able to use their bodies essentially as these giant conduits, um, you know, to be able to jack themselves in and so on and so forth. But yeah, another trope is definitely the idea of, well, if this is not, if the body doesn't matter, 
there can be abuse. And if you can put any memory you want into a person, that is another type of abuse all on its own. One of the, uh, this also was not cyberpunk, but Ian McDonald's, uh, the algebraist, had a lot of type of cyberpunk tropes in it. And one of them was uh, how one of the uh, women, her essential torture was that for three weeks, she was put into this virtual world where she was constantly tortured and raped. So much so that when she got out of it, she killed herself because she couldn't handle it, because she could not separate. And in Neuromancer, one of the ways that they punish criminals is by putting them into this kind of sped up V time where they are in a virtual prison. And technically, it's only happening to them for maybe like an hour. But for them, they were there for five years. And they are trying to come back from this and they they don't know how. Like it has completely messed with them and they have like these flashbacks almost as if like a PTSD of sort. You know? So yeah, definitely the idea of any kind of exploitation and it's always done by the more powerful to what they consider the lesser. Um, whether that be a synthetic, whether that be a human that is gonna be short lived someone who is poor, someone who doesn't have the mental capacity in that regard. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of darkness in cyberpunk as well. Well, yeah. I do, I want to mention that one book and then it was ad- adapted to film that I think of as being quasi-cyberpunk that actually I think of as very hopeful and that was Ready Player One by Ernest Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is definitely. Yeah, I mean, that is almost YA and it's also very, I mean, you can, there's still things to be criticized about it, but it it leaves you with a sense of, oh, you know, this kid is going to help make this this better. It's not about taking down rich people who were exploiting anyone. It was sort of more adventure-based. But it does criticize being too much in, like, a cyber world and being separated from the real world. So it is at least making a commentary on, hey, don't be on your computer all the time. <laughs> don't yeah. be, you know, remember your humanity and, and stay grounded in that, even if you're connected all the time. Right, right. Yeah, I would say the movie was probably uh, a little more upbeat than the book itself. The book itself probably had a, a bit more gravitas, you know, as far as all of that, especially, you know, like you said, fighting the corporation, um, that type of thing. But yeah, Ready Player One, I had forgotten about that. Yeah, that's interesting because I wonder if, I'm sure that somebody would consider that cyberpunk, but I bet there are some purists who would maybe, for some of the reasons that you said, maybe not consider that but then again when you you start getting into ya you get into a field where anything can be because they're not real hung up on the genres and the subgenres the the way that adult fiction ends up getting you know as a matter of fact even in our little middle grade novel which i consider more of an in-betweener novel because it's somewhere in between middle grade and ya as far as themes go and so forth but we have a, a virtual world that the kids go into and I, I think it's really cool because we do do a lot with like tech and gadgetry and so forth. So much so that probably if I had a bunch of tags that I could tag it as, one of them I would probably end up putting down as cyberpunk. Cool. Well, gosh, we, we could probably go on and on about <laughs> this. It's so interesting. And I could rattle off some other ones that I like too. But well, thank you, Heidi. And, and we certainly want to have you on again. And absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 
That was so fun. Heidi knows just everything about science fiction, and I'm sure we could have all gone on for hours and hours about that, but it was... We could have. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to shift gears just a little bit, Carrie, you recently saw the film Fast Color, and that's not cyberpunk, but it is speculative fiction in a way, right? It is, yeah. I wasn't exactly sure what to expect going in, but it's on Hulu, and I had been wanting to see it for a while because I heard it was about kind of superpowers, and Gugu Mbatha Ra is the main character, and I just think she's a great actress. It also stars Lorraine Toussaint and Sunia Sidney, who is like 10 or something. I should have looked that up, but she's a, she's a child and she's really good. And it was written by Julia Hart and Jordan Horowitz, and it was directed by Julia Hart. So it's set in a contemporary world, but water is scarce. Oh, interesting. Yes, which I didn't know going into it. I didn't know it was like a kind of an alternate world. Uh So there's been like a big drought across the country. And some of the details are really cool. So Gugu Mbathara plays Ruth. And in one scene, she's sitting in in a cafe or a diner or something. And this guy next to her makes a comment about how coffee is really bad now because they can't make it with water or something like that. And behind them on the wall, there's a, there's like a poster about saving water and reporting people who waste water and stuff like that. Uh So that was that part of the world building was kind of a surprise to me. And I really ended up liking it because it plays into the the storyline, which is that Ruth has some sort of powers and it's a little bit uncertain at first, but she's kind of on the run and the first thing we kind of see happen to her is she checks into this motel and they charge an exorbitant amount of money for water for just like a half gallon of water a gallon of water and she's in her hotel her motel room and she calls the front desk and is like you need to get to safety now and then she ties herself to a bed and she has a seizure and there's an earthquake at the same time Yeah, so like all this stuff happens and you're kind of like, what? So after that happens, she kind of realizes people are looking for her. So she goes back home to her mom's house and she hasn't seen her mom in a while. And we also find out that her mom, Bo, has been taking care of Ruth's daughter, Lila. So there's like a lot of history in there. And we find out, again, I don't want to get too spoilery, but we find out that this is sort of a matrilineal gift. And Bo and Lila, they have this power where they can like take things apart and put them back together. Oh. And I'm not explaining it well, but when you see it on screen, it's very cool. Uh-huh. And the title comes into play because when they put things back together, they can see like these colors emanating from the object oh. for a little while. After It's like an after effect. Uh-huh. And we find out that Ruth hasn't seen the colors. So, yeah, I'm not going to give you any more plot because I think it's kind of, it's not a superhero movie in the traditional sense. There's not like, there's not really people to save. And it's more about the, the characters finding out how their powers work and the history behind, well, there's not a lot of history, but it's a quiet film, if that makes sense. And it's very much about their family unit and Ruth's journey from not being able to access her powers in a true way 
to end her figuring that out. And it's just, it's kind of, it's interesting and it's, it's lovely. And I really, really liked the ending. I don't want to give a lot away, but it's, it's pretty. And the ending was really kind of powerful. So yeah, I would very much recommend it. I think you in particular would like it. Uh And I would be interested in hearing what you think of it if you give it a shot. Cool. That sounds really good. Yeah. yeah. And I like that actress. I've seen her in a lot of stuff. She, for, for some listeners, she might be familiar as uh, being in the season of Doctor Who where Martha Jones was in the season that she played Martha's sister. And she's been in a lot of other stuff too. But yeah. Cool. Yeah. Neat. Well, I will check that out. So that's on Hulu right now? It is. Yeah. Was that going to be theatrical if we hadn't been in the quarantine? Or No, this came out last year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Well, great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd rather email us, you could do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs>